Hello, I'm Kate Fitzgerald from the Learning Hack team, welcoming you to a new season of Great Minds on Learning. In this series, Donald Clark, the internationally famous author, blogger, and entrepreneur, joins John Helmer to explore two and a half thousand years of thought and theorizing about learning from the Greeks to the geeks. This time, Donald and John discuss a group of theorists who extended the scope of learning theory beyond the individual. They examined how it functions within teams, families, social networks, and society as a whole. on this podcast we've mostly talked about theorists who inquire into how individuals learn but this time we're looking more at learning in the context of groups of people not just individuals we're looking at team dynamics and the social context of learning donald can you tell us about the lineup you've assembled for us today and the beliefs and interests that make them cohere as a group for you sure yeah so I think it's important right at the start to make a distinction between social learning, uh, the sort of social learning that might be associated with uh, social constructivists like Piaget or Vygotsky, Brunner, uh, and uh, I, I think they were focusing on something quite separate from this group, which looks at groups and teams, especially mm-hmm. in the workplace, but also, of course, in sport and in schools and education. So the people we're going to look at today are going to be Belbin, who was trying to uh, define the very nature of teams themselves, the different roles that not people, but roles that people have in teams. He was uh, incredibly influential in terms of uh, the impact on workplace learning. Uh, Salas is more concerned with the training of teams. What makes a good team tick, and how do you how do you get them motivated, and how do you how do you structure them and train them to get things really moving a group or a team? And then Wegner widened it out somewhat into communities of practice. Now, those people like coders, for example, or programmers, uh, have a community of practice that might be online and quite wide, but that's like a horizontal structure from which they learn. In fact, they're quite homogeneous, not heterogeneous like a team. So we'll have a look at Wenger's uh, uh, communities of practice. And lastly, one of my favorite uh, psychologists, uh, and that's uh, Judith Harris who, as Steven Pinker said, revolutionized psychology. He, he thinks she's one of the greatest psychological minds uh, living today. So that will end on that. But this is very much about teams, group dynamics, uh, you know, the practical side of social learning. And did you miss out Julian Stott in there? And of course, Julian, yeah. Oh, how could I miss Julian? So yeah. I, I, yeah, Julian definitely, in a sense, widening it out even further because mm. Julian's, uh, uh, Julian's view is that we do live in the social age. And that ignoring the social dimension, not only in teams and groups, the dynamic within organizations. Uh, and he explores lots of different facets of this. So he's perhaps the widest theorist of all in this group. So how could I forget Julian? Great. Um, so should we kick off with Meredith Belbin, 1926 sure. to Still Among Us, uh, a Brit? Yeah studied classics then psychology at clare college cambridge um i was interviewed at clare college cambridge 
but they didn't want me. No hard feelings. Bastards. In the late 60s, it's the narcissistic wound, Donald. We may cover that when we get to Freud. In the late 60s, he studied team dynamics in the administrative staff college at Henley-on-Thames, as it was then called. Published this work in 1981, and it became famous. From his research, he found that there were nine team roles, and I'm going to list them now so you don't have to do it from memory. That's always very impressive, Donald. Resource investigator, team worker, coordinator, plant, and we're not talking about a cheese plant there. Yeah. Monitor, monitor evaluator, specialist, shaper, implementer, completer, finisher. And I know everybody's now thinking, oh, which one of those am I? Donald, yeah. I almost felt for a moment that we were back in similar territory to our previous episode, Assessors, where we were looking at personality types and Myers-Briggs and Jung, Jungian personality types and so on. But it's not like that, is it? This is different. It's more about how people function as part of a team. So how did Belbin arrive at these team roles and what significance have they had for learning? Yeah, well, I think it's quite important to put this in the... I mean, today, people, when they think of teams, they probably, the first word that comes to mind is diversity of teams. The premise behind Belbin's uh, nine roles is the idea that teams should be heterogeneous and not homogeneous. Mm -hmm. uh, because what he found when he went into organizations, just empirically, that everybody seemed to be very similar, you know, whether it's uh, all advisors in number 10 went to Oxbridge, for example. And you can clearly see how people get into a sort of group think, ignoring the views of others, uh, dynamic in teams and groups when they are heterogeneous. Uh, but this is, uh, we can perhaps come to this later, but this is not the diversity uh, issue in many ways, you know, the, uh, it, we, we can come to that towards the end. This is very much about defining abstract roles independently of personality types even, uh, independently of gender, race, socioeconomic background and so on. And the empirical evidence that he looked at here gave him nine clusters of behaviours, you might call them clusters, statistically. Uh, and it's not that these are roles, remember, they're not, uh, you know, they're not individuals. Typically, we have nine roles, which he's identified, or nine clusters of behaviours. But the team could could be as few as three or four people. They just have maybe three, four, sometimes one, sometimes four of these roles. So these are roles, not people, heterogeneous, not homogeneous clusters of behaviour. Uh, that's that's Belbin's, that's Belbin's, thing as it were uh, his shtick uh, yeah. the team roles are as you said quite interesting and uh, you know these have been applied a lot over the years and uh, i think there's some rigidity which we can come to at the moment in the team roles but they're certainly interesting and so you know you've got these you start with this sort of person who's out there this resource instigator i quite like that that the person who's full of enthusiasm has makes contacts within the organization or even with customers to get feedback and so on that's quite interesting right? normally quite extrovert person that would be but he also looks at the negatives associated with each each of these roles because these people mm -hmm. can be incredibly enthusiastic but they're not very good at sticking to the task and finishing yeah. so you got that first one the resource investigator which is an interesting one then the team workers the the sort of bonder you know the glue who gels and brings the team together and they're important because they're the sort of listener you know trying to avoid friction you know uh, smooth the path out amongst the team and there's always somebody in a team who if they're good at that they are invaluable but they're, they tend to be not sometimes to take unpopular decisions or do things that are a bit tough you know they can go with the flow a little bit so resource investigator teamwork are the second one 
Uh, now, the coordinator is, you know, what are the objective? Who's doing what? They're, they're bringing together people, but moving it forward. They're sort of, you know, they're identifying the talent. They're motivating the team, clarifying the goals. Where are we going here, guys? Uh, they can sometimes be seen as a bit manipulative, you know, <laughs> pushy, even, the coordinators. And then there's that weird one you mentioned. You're right, it shoots out at you, the plant. Now, the plant, Belbin thought, was quite important because they're the sort of catalyst or maybe creative problem solver. You know, a, not the sort of person that's good at details, incidentals uh, uh, within the team, but somebody when you've got a big problem, a big roadblock perhaps gets you around or pivots the team towards another direction because it's necessary. That's the plant. You have another really important role, which is the monitor or evaluator. And they're the people who really have to keep an eye on the team. Uh, you know, they, it's that objective decision maker, monitoring, project management type person to make sure that certain things are done by a certain date and so on. And yeah. I think the evaluator, they sometimes, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not the driver of the team. They're the sort of person who's reflective about the team. And then the specialist is what we sometimes in the learning world we call a subject matter expert. They're the people okay. who bring the expertise to the table and specialist knowledge. They, they can be very single-minded, but very useful. That's your well of knowledge and skills that you've got to, you, uh, in terms of the goals of the, uh, the team. But as we know with SMEs in the learning world, you know, they don't have the expertise in terms of team dynamics. They can very often, you know, in, in learning, for example, even though the principle in psychology learning is less is more. The other sort of people who believe that more is more. Just give them more and more content, you know, and, the, and people will learn. So that's the specialist or SME role, subject matter expert. Mm -hmm. And then the, uh, the the shaper. The shaper is an odd one. I think there's some overlap with this. I have some problems with Belvin here, but the, the shaper is the person who's driving the team forward, making sure that the thing keeps moving, doesn't, doesn't lose that uh, drive. You know, it keeps a train on the track, but also keeps the, the foot in the pedal to make sure it's going at some speed. And these sometimes, sometimes they can be a bit brash and, you know, people they can hack people off a little bit in teams, but they're driving it forward. And that's sometimes necessary as well. Teams are not necessarily about just keeping people happy all the time. Uh, you know, uh, as we know from, let's say, sport, <laughs> uh, it's about drive, will, the willingness to win and get things done. Then you have forgotten the implementer. So they, they're practical, reliable people. You know, there's uh, efficient players in the teams. Uh, they, they, they're the people who just... You know, pragmatic, they have a workable strategy, practical line, it's that efficient, efficiency is their, their, their kick, really. But they can be a bit inflexible and slow to respond to new possibilities. You know, they're on the railway track, but they're not going to come off the track very easy, easily. That's the implementer. And then the big one, the last one, is the one that people probably remember most from Belvin. That's they say, oh, he's not a completer, he's not a finisher, or she's not a completer, not a finisher. And the completer finisher is quite important, and the one that really, there's a good reason people have picked up on this, because it's often the weakness in a team. You know, the person, you need somebody who's good on detail, searches out all the flaws and errors, you polishes, perfects, got all the quality control to make sure this thing is right, whatever it is, maybe a product, uh, mm. when it's launched. They'd be quite conscientious, but incredibly important members of the team.
Hmm. So they've got these nine roles, and they've proved to be quite efficacious. You know, it's a business, the Belvin business, as it were, which they run, uh, you know, with relatives and so on. So there's a bit of like, marketing stuff around it. And hmm. I, I suspect that it's not as scientific as they would uh, say. But I think it serves and has served a very useful role in terms of teasing out these strands of team roles. How much did you find this accorded with your experience when, of course, because you've led an organisation, um, yeah. And dealt with management issues and teams and so on. Did it ring true in actual practice for you? Yes, I I, I think it did. Uh, I mean, if you, I mean, let, let's let's take some real example. I mean, we, you can take the example of this podcast, for example. You know, now I'm just coming into the podcast as a subject matter expert, playing that role in the mm. team. But I know, John, that you have somebody who's doing the planning and the scheduling. You, you have communication with me about when this is going to happen. You yourself yeah. are an enabler here in terms of the whole project. You have a, an editor. You have somebody who does the graphics. Then you've got to do all the marketing afterwards and so on. So much people, you know, the simplicity of a simple podcast as a delivery, for example, this one, belies the complexity of the team behind the scenes. And they all have different skills. And mm -hmm. as you know, different roles. And you're often trying to choose people who've got the right mixture, fuel mixture of these. Now, when I was running, you know, quite large organizations, and I've also been on the boards, interestingly, of a lot of very large organizations, you find that they are more heterogeneous than you would want them to be. Hmm. And uh, again, avoiding, you know, that it's that, that's separate from the diversity issue. I mean, there's, you know, the diversity issue is sometimes a bit of a distraction here around this issue of team building. Uh, because the, there was a really uh, excellent Harvard Business Review article in 2020 uh, by Eli, uh, I can't remember the name, Eli, uh, Eli Thomas. Because the, the, the thing about diversity is not that if you have more uh, people of colour, women and so on, that the, the, the people who have uh, rightly been wronged in this, this mix, that it will lead to increased financial performance. There's no empirical evidence for that at all. And these are the people, it's Eli and Thomas, who have done a lot of the, most of the major research in the field. But it does matter in terms of the dynamic, dynamic of the team. So Eli and Thomas are interesting in diversity. So diversity isn't the main goal here. Actually, the main goal here is getting the right mixture of heterogeneity into a team to make it work. And so I think my, my feeling and my experience in running companies and being on boards is that this Belbin thing definitely works. But it's so hard to do because you have to really go for a process. It's not a training issue. It's a process around recruitment. Another thing in my life that's been interesting is my son is, is, is an athlete. He's, you know, he's in the England team for Taekwondo. He's been training all this weekend because uh, of a big competition coming up, the Euros and then the World Cup, travels all over the world doing this. But I've gone along to a lot of the England team training sessions. That's an interesting thing to watch because it's so intense with regard to the team dynamic. And they're very keen on, you know, you, sport is an amazing thing. You know, the sheer amount of effort, money, coaching that goes into the team dynamic. It's the place mm. where you can find a lot of the empirical theory about efficacy in teams. The same is true in the military, for example, with after action reviews and so on. So I think whatever area of human endeavor you look at, whether it's a team in a hospital, whether it's in the military, whether it's in sport, or generally in business, the sort of Belbin principle applies. You could say the same with rock bands as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, drummers, yeah, bass I mean, players you... obviously have a different job, but also <laughs> within the group dynamics, you have people who do. I think I did a lot of the shaping because um, I was all the, pers 
the person that read led the uh, rehearsals and so on in in, in my particular yeah. group. Uh, and then you have other people, complete a finisher. It's usually an engineer or a producer or, <laughs> yeah. or someone like that, you know, maybe someone outside the band. But you find you do find that dynamic as well in, in groups. Used to. It, it's yeah. changed. It's different now. But there you go. Donald, how has Bell been fared over the years? Because it's 1981 he first published this. And yeah. I, I know he's very popular uh, around the turn of the century. Is he still? I mean, are the Bell been... Oh yeah, I think Belbin's roles still yeah. popular, still work. Yeah, well, of course, Belbin himself had it. He's been in his nineties, but his family have taken over that business. There's a Belbin yeah. businesses where around individuals, teams, the workplace, and so on. And I think it's lasted because it's fundamentally sort of quite sensible and a good way of delivering tra training into organisations. Not so much the training issue. We'll come to that with Salas, but more this is how you structure teams. This is the roles. Uh, and uh, you, because the performance of teams very often determines the success of a business now. So mm. becoming a bigger deal, the integration collaborative nature of teams. So I think it still lasted. It would be fair to say that that brand of the word Belbin has come off the boil somewhat, but I think that's okay because other people have come to the fore. And of course, we're about to discuss those. Okay, so let's get on to Eduardo Salas. Uh, problem of with living people is you very often don't have many details about them, so I don't know when he was born, but he's still alive. He was born and raised in Peru. Um, Eduardo Salas is an American industrial and organizational psychologist and human factors psychologist. He studied at ODU joined the US Navy as a senior research psychologist and head of the training technology development branch of the US Naval Air Systems Command in Orlando. He is the Alan R. and Gladys M. Klein Chair Professor in the Department of Psychological Sciences at Rice University in Texas. Doesn't quite win the prize for the longest job title we've ever had on this uh, podcast, but he's certainly up there. Salas is known for his work on teamwork, including work with NASA on training astronauts to go to Mars. Yeah. And he found seven drivers for teamwork, which all begin with the letter C. I think in a previous episode, you, you called out lists that begin with C, but let's see how we get on with this one. <laughs> yeah. Capability, cooperation, coordination, communication, cognition, coaching and conditions. Donald, does he build on Belbin's work or is he looking at something different entirely? Yeah, he's building, but this is different. Whereas Belbin was looking at the roles within teams, mm -hmm. Salas is looking at how you train, uh, how you train teams. I mean, his his observation, the the, re the reason that he spent so much time and a lifetime really in looking at the training and dynamic of teams is that you know no matter where a team is, whether it's online or offline, increasingly online these days, virtual teams, of course he found that they were mostly what he called suboptimal. In other words, they weren't really performing as they should, full of friction, full of problems teams. And so he was tackling not so much the roles in teams, but how you train teams to make them better, the processes, the, the training, the increasing in performance, even the saving of money, so you're not losing money in an organization, or even in the case, I mean, he was in the military, even in the case of, let's say, healthcare or the fire service, emergency services, the military, even in the sense of saving lives. He's done a lot of work in that area. And rightly so, because the military are one area where the, a huge amount of time has been spent 
honing the concept of optimal teams. Mm -hmm. So it's very different from Belvin in that sense, yeah. And then you have those drivers, of course. You, you're absolutely right. I was, I'm always deeply suspicious of lists that begin with the same letter, and, and that's usually C in training. Uh, you know, the world just, the, the real world is just never that alliterative. It's just statistically weird. But I, I think to be fair to Salas, his, you know, his seven sort of C words actually come out of some other topics that are quite interesting. You know, that whole notion of a team having, so the dynamics of a team are slightly different from Belbin. He doesn't concentrate on roles, but he does concentrate on other contextual issues like cooperation, you know, do people have the right attitudes within a team to make it work? Or the coordination, do they have the right trained behaviours to make the team work? You know, you might not have to do what you would like to do, but behave as a team member. Communications between team members, that was incredibly important. And if you've ever been in a team, you'll know that that could be, uh, you know, a life and death issue in terms of yeah. success. And then there's just... You know, what, what do the team members know? Do they know what their roles are? Do they know what they're doing? Do they have the right skills and that sort of stuff? And then there's the the coaching thing, all that leadership behaviours stuff. I'm, I'm less, less bothered by that one. But the big one, I think, is conditions. Do you have the favourable conditions? Is the organisation team ready? Uh, is the context right? Does it give you the right tools, let's say Microsoft Teams or Slack or whatever, structures, the reward system and so on. So you look at this big picture of teams, what makes, what optimizes team performance? That would be a good way uh, uh, of putting it. And some of the stuff is really interesting here. Uh, a, a, a concept that arose really in Salas, it's come at the fore now, psychological safety, the idea that if you're in a team, you should feel confident enough or safe enough to be able to criticize things that are going on. You know, a good team is very open in terms of communications, going back mm. to what we see. So creating a top context where every member of the team can feels confident in criticizing or saying, no, let's not do that, do it this way. That, that collective responsibility was a real driver for Salas, the psychological safety thing. And he was very, he also found interestingly in his research that the, one of the dangers is dropping a sort of star performer in or parachuting somebody into a team yeah. who is massively disrupt, disruptive and destroys the dynamic. And that happens a lot. Uh, you can see that with, you know, the super heads in schools, for example. Yeah, it's great, but, you know, uh, the evidence suggests that it, it can be uh, more destructive than constructive. So, hmm. you know, he had... He really had a, a, a deep dive into the characteristics of what makes a good team. And I, I think that's his research is really excellent in this area. He really nails it, I think. And team dynamics, really, rather team than... Team dynamics, yeah. yeah. And a, another thing I liked about his team, they're a little bit, it's very practical, as advice. So it's not only about having, you know, purposes, goals, roles, responsibilities, and so on. It... And this shared understanding is an interesting one. The team has to all buy into a vision. It's like a mini company within a company, <laughs> you know, or you know, a, a mini uh, like a like a band. Has to be, they have to be very clear about their musical direction, their fiscal uh, fiscal direction, when they're going to go on tour, when they're not. You know, as a collective unit. Mm. But he has this really interesting thing that comes out of the military, and the military call it after action reviews, AARs. So if you've been on a mission or a task then you stop afterwards and you evaluate what you've done. 
where you really have that absolute honesty. What went wrong there, guys? You know, what really, let's be honest here. And so he, he's big on huddles and debriefs. You mm. find this is origin and this is happening a lot in, uh, in, in scrum type uh, behavior in the IT world where you teams get together very regularly, first thing in the morning or on a planned basis yeah. to discuss the progress of the project and be very honest about what's not working. Mm. So huddles and debriefs was one of his big things. They're sharing information, getting these optimal performance criteria in terms of policies and so on. Yeah, so it sounds like it's relevant to movements like Agile and so on. Which are... Very much so, yeah. I think in many, in many ways, the Agile movement came out of this, ah. you know, in a project. What's the forward moving dynamic in a project? Should it be more waterfall structure? Sometimes that's necessary if you need to get legal sign off on a project or it's very staged with stage gates. So with um, Salas and Belbin to an extent, we're kind of in the world of organizations, organizational development. Is it stretching the definition of learning to call this learning theory, do you think? Or no, well, Salas in particular was, I mean, he sees himself, he sees training, all his theory is, is directed towards the training of teams. He mm. thinks you should be interventionist and come in and get these things sorted and that teams are very rarely self-sufficient unless they're very experienced. And of course, most teams are not uh, because they're younger employees or whatever, they're a mixture of people. But uh, uh, the, both those figures, Belbin and Salas, are very much in the training world. Okay. Uh, very much in the learning world, their theory comes from that, as opposed to abstract theory about teams and team building. So, moving on. Etienne Wenger, 1952, uh, and still alive, grew up in the French-speaking part of Switzerland, which is the reason I suppose he has those uh, first and second names seem to be to our ears of different nationalities studied at University of Geneva and University of California, where he now lives. He was approached by John Seeley Brown, a name which will be familiar to learning theory wonks, to join the Institute for Research of Learning. And it was there that Wenger did the work he's best known for on communities of practice in collaboration with anthropologist uh, Jean Lave, or Lave, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, which came out of observing apprenticeships among traditional tailors in Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, communities of practice has been a very popular idea in e-learning and knowledge management circles. Donald, is it popular with you? And how does it move our understanding of social learning along? Yes, it's very relevant in that it's a completely different dimension to teams and learning here. So you have this sort of horizontal spread amongst a homogeneous group of people. So let's say the tailors in Africa or apprentices in a particular guild in the Middle Ages or whatever. And it, this is built on, uh, you know, an anthropological or sociological observation that these groups of people who are in a community of practice, they all do the same thing, basically, learn a lot from each other, hence the term community of practice. Mm -hmm. And so the anthropological, uh, Jean La uh, Lavi, she, she plucked that out of the historical analysis or anthropological analysis of teams and found that actually these community practices exist, have existed throughout history. However, there is a slight problem with this in that the world has changed somewhat. We don't really have an apprenticeship system of learning these days, a master apprentice. So uh, perhaps this theory is of less interest than the first two we mentioned, but it's nevertheless 
got lots of traction. Uh, you know, Etienne Wenger is quite famous. This notion that this group of people have all these skills and, and knowledge in common. The, the groups I know most about, of course, are tech groups. So you have coders, for example, who see themselves as quite a, a, a group in itself. You know, they very mm. often are self-skilling. They have these resources like GitHub and all sorts of tools and so on. They're quite self-sufficient, but they see that they have an identity as a group or a profession. Uh, and it's, this extends not only within an organization, let's say all the engineers in a telco, but it also outside of the organization into the, maybe the trade associations that they're members of. So the community is a practice, whether they're online or offline, and increasingly online these days, uh, are these wide homogeneous communities that learn within the group. And uh, I think there's definitely something in this. Uh, but I think it's a mistake to regard that as the be-all and end-all in terms of group and team dynamics. Mm -hmm. uh, I think apprenticeship groups, upon which all this was based, are, are much rarer these days, and that we have far more cross-network structures and teams. This is the weakness of the community practice thing. In fact, there's a great danger of groupthink or, you know, the coders getting together and thinking that they're king of the hill and that all these other people in the team, like the graphic designers and so on, are beneath contempt or whatever. You know, you, mm. get, you can get negativity around communities of practice as well. Uh, and it's not clear that the social context that he goes on to on about is, is as important, I think, as the internal dynamics of teams and groups. So there's a sense in, in which his theory of learning squeezes everything into this community of practice social box. <laughs> and uh, I think that's a weakness of the theory. Nevertheless, uh, when you're dealing with social learning and groups of practice, there is an immense amount of very specific training that happens within one domain or one area of learning, let's say coding, mm. or in the case of my son, Taekwondo, you know, he's, he's just spent the whole weekend training he uh, during the week it'll be four nights in the gym doing it's an intense very specific form of training around the team he's a member of hmm. so i uh, i think that's where Wenger's community practice is still important another dimension entirely around social groups and teams and organizations I'd certainly come across that with coders i was in an organization once where we decided we'd, we'd get yammer in as a common kind of messaging tool for everyone to use uh, and half the people in this company, more than half, were, were coders. And they pushed back against this because they used IRQ and they weren't going to budge from that. Um, and we discovered in the course of this that they weren't only using it to uh, communicate with each other, but to their uh, community of practice um, externally. So if any of them ran into a problem they couldn't fix, they'd get on IRQ and ask someone in that extended network and get the answer straight back, which is kind of learning the flow of work, if you like. Other places have seen it a, a lot. I think you, you see this in the professions, um, you know, kind of lawyers, yeah. solicitors, doctors, and it, a lot happens around conferences and stuff like that. There's a kind of socialization within a profession that goes on, um, and it, you, you see that in certain kind of clubs as well. Musicians do it, artists, writers, authors. I've been to a... Um, for years been to a writer's retreat, which is also as, as an element of kind of community around it. People swap information about, you know, how much should you get paid for this? How much you should, should your agent be taking or not taking, you know, aren't publishers terrible, blah, blah, blah. 
Yeah. So that's my bit it's, on computers practice. List. Yeah, it's an interesting list you gave there. And I suppose that teases out the problem with community as well as its benefits. One of the problems, I mean, it was a famous quote, you know, that all professions are a conspiracy against the laity yeah. <laughs> because they tend to be inward looking and, uh, you know, just almost ignoring you as a customer. If you've mm. dealt with lawyers, for example, I think that's one group where their communication is awful, they, they never meet deadlines. They, you know, it, it, it can be a magnificently horrific experience dealing with that world because they're so they see their form of practice as being uh, rock solid and uh, they tend to ignore the customer uh, but I think this notion of a community of practice being inclusive is a good thing like the coders and the example you gave there but at the same time is inclusivity means it's uh, in terms of the group means that it excludes other people outside of the group mm. and your example of a uh, Yammer, uh, you know, whether it's you know Slack or anything that people try and implement, let's say even as a learning dimension, you always have these divisions because people are already using something in their own homogeneous group, community of practice, but mm. actually you want a vertical group as well. It's a very good book in this by, by Neil Ferguson uh, 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 called the, uh, the Tower and the Square. In other words, you always get this agora dynamic you know, let's yeah. say a flat, decentralized structure, but at the same time, you've got a tower, which is a hierarchical structure, but you've also got to recognize that matters and is important as well. Yeah, I think very often when people try to implement a community of practice using technology within an organization, you discover that they discover, well, they discover is that there is one already there and they're yeah. not in it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So Julian Stodd, um, quite a lot about him on the internet, but in certain ways enigmatic, no dates, unknown to Wikipedia. Uh, a Brit, he studied at Bournemouth University. He's on the faculty at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education. He's the author of at least 14 books, and he's the captain and founder of Seasalt Learning, a global learning consultancy, helping organizations adapt and thrive in the social age and the social age is uh, one of his big phrases. I saw him speaking on the Learning Leaders Global Online Forum, where he said he wrote a book about learning science and didn't publish it. Um, as you and I know, it's a pretty difficult subject to nail, uh, which is hence this podcast. He says that people trust social technologies more than the ones supplied by their organisations. This was something he said on the, the conference including some they are often explicitly forbidden from using at work, which I think is an interesting reflection. Yeah. But Donald, you know a lot more, you've read a lot more of his stuff. Donald, can you tell us about his idea of the social age and social leadership, what it's all about, and what do you feel he contributes? Yeah, well, the good news here is I know Julian, he's a friend of mine, and huh. I'm a big admirer of Julian's. He's a, quite an unusual figure in this landscape, but he has absolute so a relentless focus on what he calls the big picture. He thinks we live in the social age and that that is partly to do with technology, but partly to do with the nature of organizations where the social dimension has become more important. So, you know, he's devoted his, uh, uh, his life so far to examining, unpicking. He is an archeologist by background interest. And I often yeah. think that he is almost like, uh, you know, one of those people who dig deep into the past 
to shape the future in terms of learning theory and specific the social learning theory. And he's written 14 books, but he's a he's unusual in another respect in that he is he practices what he preaches. So he believes in humility and trust. So you'll quite often see him both in his written work and also when he's speaking at conferences and so on, quite literally say, listen, everything I do is in beta, it's half completed, unfinished, it's a work in progress. Mm. And so he's very honest about that, which I find admirable. And he also has quite a lot of focus on personal journeys, you know, and this this has been, you know, he's, he tends not to write very academic books. He tends to talk about the sort of journeys people go on. Journeys through these, he uses landscape as a metaphor a lot. In other words, we're moving through the social landscape. What are the features of this landscape? How do we navigate through the social world that we find ourselves in? And in that way, I think people, I certainly and others have found him very enlightening on this. Uh, generally, we have to start with Julian. You always have to think of this big picture social age. He does believe that, you know, the social context in which we, we exist is the dominant paradigm of the age as it were and that for organizations organizations have to recognize this that there's more than just the social context of the workplace for example there's the social context of your family of uh, the groups you're a member a member of outside of work Uh, so it's a much bigger issue all these social relationships communities that we're part of that's a big thing for julian and I think those social structures, an understanding of those social structures, and therefore, how can you improve organizational development by paying attention to this? So a good example of social leadership, you know, that leadership training, which I'm often not fond of. Mm. Uh, but I think, to be fair to Julian, he has a very clear view of social leadership based on, he focuses very much on human qualities as opposed to personality types or whatever, things like humility and trust, kindness. He thinks that those are admirable traits in organizations. But he is, he's not very abstract in this. He produces these guidebooks, hmm. which are very concrete ways in which you as a manager or an individual in an organization can navigate the social landscape. So I think, you know, although it sounds vague, he can be very, very precise when he wants to be. And so, you know, he's got, he has very specific things around the, his, his theories for this around curation, storytelling, sharing, the notion of authority and reputation, trust, humility. All those things really matter to him, and he takes deep dives into these things, not at all shallow. Trust, right. for example, trust and humility are a few big things in it generally in his theory. And he often talks about having humility to listen in a social context. And that what really matters are these subtle dimensions in a so- this new social world we find ourselves in, as opposed to the rather fractious, binary, conflicted nature of social media, for example. He thinks that having you- the humility to listen uh, is perhaps the quality we should be encouraging more. Hmm. And he is he's very specific, again, on that. We, it's 12, well, take trust, for example. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> He really drills down into the different dimensions of the trust. It's where I take some issues. We, we have, you know, although I know him, he's a good friend of mine, he, we, we disagree on a number of things. He thinks that trust is fundamental here in terms of trusting the technology, trusting the creativity of others, allowing for failure, ethnicity, a whole track of things here. Whereas I, I, I'm less enamored with those, with, with, with things like trust and humility as the actual real drivers in a business or leadership. I think sometimes when you're running, let's say, a large public limited company, 
you can't be as transparent uh, and as trustworthy as you should be because your competition's there and you've got your share price and there are all sorts of dimensions of a business means that it's not as simple as you might imagine. So I think some issue with that, but I think in general, his work on social learning and being careful not, he's very careful not being over prescriptive. You know, we've been through Belbin, who has these nine roles. Mm. We have been through the seven C's from uh, <laughs> the seven C's. Uh, so it's, uh, 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 from uh, uh, from Salas. When you come to Julian Stodd, he doesn't really do this so much. You know, he's not. He, he prefers the word mindset to more. He doesn't really like models or methods. And yeah. I think there's something admirable in this: the fluidity of thinking in a social age. So in that sense, he practices what he preaches. But he can be very precise. He wrote a really good book called To the Moon and Back, which explores the Apollo mission discussing how the social dynamic and group and team dynamics meant that we did actually get somebody to the moon. How amazing was that, you know? Mm. Uh, and it was all about, you know, the themes in the book are all about how complex this thing was, uh, how they had lots of failure and had to live with failure, but it was important that they had that ambition and drive as well. Mm. So he, tell, he, he describes himself as a storyteller, and that's one excellent story in which he exhibits both his own thoughts on social learning but also through a real case study. Right. He calls it his, he uses the tense, I like, it's a good phrase, sense-making. You know, he said you've got to navigate the social landscape by making sense and making meaning from it as an individual. Hmm. Uh, 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 now, I suppose my, my beef were, it does not be factually, would you, we discuss this a lot, but, you know, I'm on the other side of the coin. I tend to be more evidence and research-based person uh, and so anything Julian says, I like to look at the evidence side of it as well. But the great thing about Julian is how open he, he is. He has real humility. You know, if you if you challenge him, he, he will genuinely listen and take things on board. So I think he's an, a, I think the most interesting theorist in this area, uh, but more importantly, one of the more interesting practitioners in the area. Because yeah. what is theory without practice? What's going to be my question? Is he open to to attack, because unlike people like Belbin, there's not necessarily, it's not based on empirical observation in a scientific sense, although obviously his hands-on and works with a lot of big organisations and so on. Yes, he does. But he's he does, more of a pure not, theorist. He's against, yeah, he's definitely not against empirical observation. You know, he, he, he's very open to it, but sees it as one dimension hmm. as opposed to the dimension. Whereas I perhaps put more weight on that than uh, than Julian, but I think I think Julian has a point here. He runs these big, almost like communities of practice. He runs a big quiet leadership course. We have thousands, hundreds, of thousands of people on these things sometimes, and uh, I think mm -hmm. people get a lot out of it because it, it's a reflective process. And he thinks again that's part of his trust and humility, uh, kicking and, and social learning, which I, I would agree with. come quite a long way from Belbin to uh, Julian I think there and now we're going in a slightly different direction but it is a kind of opening up of the, the thing from organizations into wider society uh, with Judith Rich Harris 1938 to 2018. Um, it's dangerous to claim that parents have no power at all other than genetic to shape their child's personality intelligence or the way he or she behaves outside the family home, wrote Judith Harris in 2006. And she went on a confession. 
When I first made this proposal 10 years ago, I didn't fully believe it myself. I took an extreme position, the null hypothesis of zero parental influence for the sake of scientific clarity. The establishment's failure to shoot me down has been nothing short of astonishing. It's a great quote that. Born in Brooklyn, she had a peripatetic childhood, attended University of Arizona and Brandeis, and then was dismissed from the PhD program at Harvard because her work was not up to Harvard's standards. Uh, she researched visual information processing. Then after 1981, focused on developmental psychology, leading in the 1990s to a new theory of child development that won her the APA's George A. Miller Award. The irony here being that George A. Miller, who we covered in our Cognitivists episode, was the chair of the psychology department that kicked her out of Harvard. Donald Harris's theory will strike a chord with many who, like myself, have been the parent of teenage children. What did she tell us about how they learn? Well, I like you. I mean, Judith Harris, you know, I've written over 200 profiles of learning theorists, and Judith Harris is easily in my top five. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a huge admirer of her work uh, because I think it's one of the areas uh, of learning theory that are, is perhaps almost completely ignored but is of huge relevance and practical importance. And let I maybe explain why I, I do think that's true. But I'm not alone there. Stephen Pinker, who's ar who arguably has the biggest chair in psychology on the planet at Harvard, uh, sees her book, The Nurture Assumption, as a, actually a complete turning point in the history of psychology. That's how he described it. He thinks she's one of the most important psychologists uh, living today. And she's also rather unusual, as you say, she got rejected from Harvard by George Miller, of all people. Mm. And then on top, but on top of that, she's a grandmother, suffered badly, you know, had children, uh, suffered from chronic illness and so on, but came back with this amazing body of research, largely done on her own outside of the institutional context. Mm. Now, so let, what, what is this body of work that I so admire? And it's all in two books, the first being The Nurture Assumption. And the subtitle of the book is uh, quite interesting because it, it's something why do children turn out the way they do? And it's all to do with parents don't matter as much as you think they do. Uh, peers, this is about peer learning. So that's the adjective we've got to hang our hat on when we discuss uh, Judith here. Her first observation comes from linguistics, which is that children do not, immigrant children, for example, do not have the accent of their parents. This may seem trivial. So my kids, do not have Scottish accents, despite the fact that I have a strong Scottish accent, as does my wife. So, and we've been 37 years here in Brighton, and yet our kids were born and, uh, uh, born and bred in Brighton, and of course don't have Scottish accents. She used this observation to say, to come up with a hypothesis, uh, because they, they pick up the language and accent, of course, from their peer groups. This is the key mm. thing, that's where they get the language from. And she thought, could this be true more generally in terms of their personalities, their behaviours and so on? And it turns out through twin studies and a lot of really dedicated research, yet there, this is indeed the case. And even when children behave like their parents, there's this illusion that came through in the, you know, the spot books and so on, that parents really matter with regard to how the kids turn out, turn, uh, because that was the, the orthodoxy. It turns mm. out that something quite interesting was going on here, that children behave like their parents because they're genetically related to them. Not because the parents treat them in any special way, but just because they've got their parents' genes. So there's this illusion that the parents are 
uh, you know, teaching the kids to be in such a way, but it's actually the, the genetic component or some nonsense about childhood trauma from Freud. She, she really hammers Freud on all this stuff. So what, what, did, what sort of conclusions did she come to? Well, uh, when you look at the pie chart, as it were, of what, influence, uh, what influences affect outcomes uh, in young people especially, about, she writes about 50% of it's genetic, uh, you know, in terms of their personality type, especially dispositions, traits and so on. But what about the other 50%? Uh, it's not parents at all. In fact, she reckons that's as low as 4 or 5%. 45%, she thinks, the really manipulable bit, the interesting bit that we should be paying attention to, especially in education, is peer pressure. Peer pressure. Now, if you've ever, as you rightly said there, if you've ever had teenage boys or girls, you will know deep in your heart, you're probably scarred by the fact that this happened in front of your very eyes, that peer pressure overwhelmed your children. And actually, Judith's view is that it, it actually stays there, the notion of peer groups. And this is what she called the, that's why she called it the nurture assumption. Don't imagine for one minute that you as a parent has really a, a huge influence on here. So it's probably best illustrated by a real example in education, you know, because you talk about peer pressure generally. But if you take the example of schools, so when your kids go, especially in secondary school, you find mm. that, you know, the secondary schools are full of kids. If you're a teacher, kids playing up. And they're playing up because they're appearing, appealing to their peer groups, you know, and to other children in that group. Mm. These are the most important people for children. Adults are all, and teachers are almost invisible. The most important person in a teenager's life are other teenagers, not their parents, nor their teachers. And this is what you have to control in the classroom. It's the root of most behavioral problems. The sort of groupness, peer groupness, is an incredibly powerful, almost hormonal effect Okay. Now, she 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 thinks that the contrast effects in schools and uh, and in organisation generally, if you don't pay attention to peer pressure and peer groups, you're going to get trouble because it puts wedges in between the groups and then subsequent friction between groups. So in schools, slow kids, uh, you know, the people who are not making much progress tend to associate with other kids who are not making progress and go into a sort of spiral loop downwards because they associate with each other reinforce each other's feelings of failure and uh, lack of motivation. Whereas the smart kids do the very opposite. They hang out with smart kids and therefore get better faster. So you get this wedge between two groups. And uh, she then goes on to look at, you know, it's, something's quite tribal or to do with, uh, you know, how you dress or what social group or what music you like in school or whatever. Yeah. Uh, some of it's class-based, some of it's race-based. Uh, but she, she's a, she thinks it's terribly important that you tackle this head on. Mm. And that what matters is changing the behaviour and attitudes of these groups of children to, in a sense, dilute. You can never get rid of peer pressure, but she thinks that a unisex school uniform would be a good thing, for example. I remember when I went to China, all the schools, all the kids had the same sort of tracksuit type thing. It was a sort of, you know, neither male nor female, because that's a huge peer group issue, the differentiation between the different type of peer pressure uh, amongst girls at school uh, as opposed to boys. Uh, mm. Every teacher knows this. Every parent knows this, but attempts to homogenize uh, or, or flatten out uh, those big peaks, it seems a good thing uh, by Judith Harris. So she, she, that's one practical thing, have a unisex school uniform. And I actually agree with that, or no uniform at all. Although again, people start dressing in the, as their peer groups. Smaller schools, smaller class sizes, avoid, avoid peer group 
uh, peer group pressure, and then also downplaying cultural differences. And this is where she rubs up against maybe some of the more modern theory on identity politics. She thinks it's an incredibly dangerous thing. Jonathan Haidt also agrees with this, that if you exaggerate these group or differences in terms of race, socioeconomic class, gender, uh, sexuality, you're playing a, a very dangerous game here because you're shoving people, pigeonholing people into peer groups, which may be the last thing they need. It may, it may mean that, that real diversity would mean not associating with people just like you, but associating mm. with people who are very different from you. Uh, you know, and that's that. So she has a very outward looking and positive view of diversity in that sense. And that, uh, for example, teachers splitting kids up and randomizing them with regard to where they sit in the classroom. Eric Mazur does that in lectures, for example. He found there was a correlation between the people who sat in the front of the lecture hall to the back. The, the further back you went, the lower the attainment until <laughs> you get to the back row where they're all sitting on Facebook, of course. And so he randomized people up so they weren't sitting next to people they knew and more inclined to chat to them and reinforce groupthink. So, you know, this is why I'm such a great admirer of Judith. I think in terms of the social dimension, she understands you can as a parent, as a teacher, as anyone really pick up on this and, and work with it. So summing up, these people are all relatively recent by our standards. I mean, maybe I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, we did the Enlightenment a while ago. Um, but even with the some of the other things where we come up to the present day with the theorists, they might have had an origin story that goes back to sort of William James or something. But these people are all relatively recent, I think, late 20th century. And yet social and team learning must have been going on long before the late 20th century. Why do you think it became such an area of focus at the time that it did? Well, I think we found that, uh, you know, historically, a post-industrial revolution, where people still could work uh, as individuals, as it were, on a, uh, on a production line, let's say, we had the rise of a managerial class, which was very much team-based. You know, people were literally managing teams. Mm -hmm. So you can see why Belbin became a necessary thing in the 80s and 90s and so on. Then as the internet, with the advent of the internet and this notion of socially connected working, socially connected entertainment, socially connected everything, uh, you know, here we are sitting using a piece of software. We could be on the other side of the planet as I was yesterday with somebody in the US, uh, the day before somebody in South Africa. The whole social network has expanded to become a global entity. We're increasingly, of course, working at home, knowledge working and so on. So I think the social imperative, as Julian Stodd rightly identified, has become the mark of our age. Groups matter, teams matter, peer groups matter, social working matters. Now, historically, we are naturally tribal. This probably goes, we're probably going back to the time where Robin DeMar rightly says, actually, the number of people we can cope with cognitively maxes out about 150. Number. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And we were far more used to it. In fact, we've, our brains have evolved to work in small social groups, family groups, especially, but also slightly bigger clan type size groups. So mm. it doesn't surprise me that a lot of this research is confirming that, you know, that what evolutionary psychology suggests that teams and groups and cognitively is what we can cope with. But how do we optimize that type of behavior? Because we find ourselves in the social age. 
Mm. Now, I think there's another dimension which I mentioned briefly during here. I think the mistake is to rush at some other abstract issues and not get very practical about this around diversity, for example. Diversity mm. is a good thing. But if you think, for example, that the causality is if we just have a diverse board, we will make more money. Again, the research just does not substantiate this at all. In fact, there's no evidence at all that just having more women, more people from other uh, ethnic backgrounds on your board necessarily makes you fiscally better, but it does make your teams more dynamic and more interesting and prepares you for the future in many ways. So increasing diversity does not in itself increase effectiveness. What matters is how the organization harnesses that di diversity uh, and whether it's willing to reshape the power structure in the organization. You know? uh, this promise to financial gain, I think people are shooting themselves in the foot when they go for that. The studies show that diverse teams realize performance benefits, but when you look at the team dynamics, and that's when diversity comes into play. So I think we have a lot to learn from these theorists because empirically they've looked hard at these problems and are coming up with solutions that are not glib, not ideological, but quite practical. And I think that's what's really needed here. Uh, they, in fact, you know, the, the evidence would suggest that if you just focus, for example, on, oh yeah, if we just get a diverse team, it will increase fiscal performance. If the fiscal performance doesn't actually happen, you get a negative effect. Uh, and that, that was very interesting because the researchers, let's say, you know, Thomas, when they looked at this empirically, actually, if you, you over-promise from diversity, then fail fiscally, you've shot yourself in the foot. It's far better to look for other goals around the social dynamic of an organization to increase diversity. So I think we have a lot to learn from these people and the bringing together of different areas and learning development and HR in such a way that it benefits everyone. That word social matters, but mostly in terms of teams, peer group, and so on. You know the research better than I do, but didn't I see something a couple of years ago where there was some research done with the financial um, organizations uh, and found that they did get a fiscal benefit from um, having more gender diversity. And in well, fact, the more the more cohesive the groups were in terms of, you know, if everyone in the company had been to the same school, um, they they did less well. And it, and it was measuring how much money they actually made. Well, the, the, I mean, you, I, the, the research that I know, so I, the article I would point you towards is the Harvard Business Review. There's a really brilliant article. It was in 2020, I think. This is the yeah. Eli Thomas one. And they're the other people who like, know this research inside out. But they're emphatic on this point. So they say, you know, the claim that putting more women, so let's say, on corporate boards leads to economic games is a fallacy, that there is no evidence for this at all. In fact, when you saw it, it's mostly correlation and not causality. Because in truth, when you actually look at the and look for the causality the likeliest thing is some other factors such as the industry size like banks banks make money anyway and they make more and more money so it's very difficult to untangle all the factors or you know just because you've got let's say you put two women on the board or two people from nothing it, it doesn't necessarily mean that that has caused the increased profits in that bank so they so just have to control for this, the sort of stuff that belbin's talking about apart from anything else you know you may, you may well have produced a much more complementary team in other ways and it wasn't necessarily about gender that's exactly it, because there's so many factors that result in the fiscal performance of an organization that you've got to be very, very careful in using that as your measure. 
there are other measures further back in an organization that are far more useful in terms of diversity around structure of teams, the progress of teams, how happy people are at work, uh, treating people with respect, having all the things that Julian talked about, humility and trust and so on. The, mm. the, you know, there are other things in life than money. And uh, the danger is that in tacking onto the money hypothesis, you then find that the studies show it's not true. You've suddenly demolished your main case because the case, as all these theorists have said, is about the increased efficacy of teams, uh, happier workplaces and so on and so forth. So I think that's what's really useful about this group is that not, they're not fo focused on fiscal output. They're focused mm. on team dynamics because the performance may not be money. The performance may very well be, uh, you know, the, the general context, the happiness people have at work, uh, you know, uh, not losing people because they get uh, unhappy at work. Uh, there are many other things in life than, than money. And by the sound of it, this is a, a, a kind of an area of work, a category of, of thinking that is more than ever relevant probably will become more so. I think, yeah, the, your question there was, what, why is this come of age? Because yeah. we live in a social age. That was spot on, that question, because I, I think uh, I think we now find ourselves in the right context to accept this theory. Belbin is more relevant now than it was then. It was a very mechanical, instrumental theory about the roles and teams. But then mm. if you layer on Salas's, you know, the human factors and team dynamics, then you come in with communities of practice, then Julian Stodd's much wider view of seeing it not just as a workplace issue, but generally a societal issue, communities you're a member of, your own family, your groups. I think we're much more sensitive to those social dimensions. And then Judith ha Harris comes in with an arrow to the heart and said, listen, guys, it's all very well you're seeing all this, but what, in reality, what does the science say here? <coughs> it actually says that a lot of what you think is social isn't social at all. Actually, the dominant force here is peer groups, <laughs> which can be incredibly destructive. So this idea that being social is always a good thing is not always true. I think this is a really, this is why I love Judith Harris. She punctured that, the, the, the hubris in that bubble, that everything should be social. And if, if we only make it social, everything will be fine. Well, no because peer group is perhaps one of the more dominant sides of social behavior and activity in schools, but it can be incredibly destructive. And every parent uh, has probably gone through that to one degree or another, uh, you know, having to cope with the destructive feature of peer group pressure. Well, thank you for that, Donald. I think, thought that was a really interesting episode. Uh, um, and it'd be great to see the, the feedback we get on that um, and other people's perspectives. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. Pleasure as always. Great Minds on Learning comes from the Learning Hack team and is produced by John Helmer. Sound edit is by Isaac Peacock. Social media by Jay Curtis. The podcast is based on a series of blog posts written by Donald Clark and would like to thank Donald for his kind collaboration in this project. In the next episode, Donald and John explore effective learning. Be sure not to miss it.